So today's reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's from Ephesians 6, um, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Todd. Hey, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, My name is Matthew. I serve as the pastor here at Christ City. Really excited um, that you're here. Um, Just a Quick, uh, just a quick welcome. I know some of you may be visiting or you're in town um, over the three-day Memorial Day weekend, and so just really welcome to D.C., welcome to Christ City. Delighted uh, that you're here. Um, I know as you come here and as, uh, as our nation celebrates Memorial Day, I just want to just say a, a prayer of, of blessing over those families that are uh, remembering lost loved ones uh, who served in the military want to um, pray a prayer of comfort um, over you and over those that are in our city that are remembering lives uh, that have been lost. And so, God, I do pray for your comfort for those that are in our city. Um, God, as those that, that remember sacrifices that were made uh, by those and their families uh, on behalf of a place that they love and a place that they called home. God, I pray that in, in this weekend that there would be a measure of your comfort for them, that they would experience your um, love, your care, as they remember lives of those that have gone on before them. And God, I pray that uh, as they sense your, um, your presence with them, God, I pray that, um, that they would look to you, the one in whom our hope hangs and our hope rests. We look forward to the day of resurrection and the day in which you return, Jesus, and the day in which we make war no more. So, God, as we remember and as we celebrate and lament and look forward, God, we pray for a descending of your presence and of your comfort this weekend. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Over, uh, I'm just going to jump in here. Uh, over the past several weeks, we have been investigating here at Christ City the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, I want us to continue that exploration. Two weeks ago, when we started this series, I stated that the main objective that we had in mind is that we as a church uh, would deepen our understanding of and our experience of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I said that then, and I want to say it again, that we're intentional about that language of of understanding and experiencing. There are things that we should know cognitively in an intellectual sense of the word, things that we should know about the Holy Spirit. And there are some things that, um, that we can't know with our minds, but that we just need to experience um, in our lives as it relates to the Holy Spirit, ways that we need to become familiar with the ways that the Spirit speaks to us and moves uh, in us and in the world. And three weeks ago in our final uh, sermon on, in our John series, we also dealt with the work of the Holy Spirit and kind of a prologue to the series. And then I asked you to do two things as it relates to the Spirit. I asked you to be open and I asked you to be curious about the Spirit's work. And I want, you to, I want to point you back to those sermons and some of the things that we touched on then because they continue to be important guide markers for us as we make our way through this discussion. And today as well, as we deal with the ways the Holy Spirit works in our our lives and the ways that unholy spirits work in our lives. Now, just as a public disclaimer, uh, I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm going to talk about spirits, and I'm going to talk about demons in general. 
Welcome to Christ City. If you're visiting for Memorial Weekend, we are glad that you're here. You're probably thinking, oh my word, just, we are glad you're here. Uh, shared a few weeks back, just even about my own growing understanding about the ways that the Spirit of God works and is active in the life of followers of Jesus. And I, and I shared a few stories of the ways that I've seen God's Spirit work in my life and the, the way that the Spirit has worked in the lives of those around me. I still feel like such a, a noob when it comes to understanding the ways of the Spirit of God's work in my life and in the world. And, e and similarly, and, and to some degree even more so, I'm still learning about the ways that God's enemy, that Satan, and the spirits that are under Satan's control are at work. But here's one of the things that I know, both from Scripture and lived experience, is this, that the Holy Spirit isn't the only spirit. Is that the only spirit? Um, when I was in seminary, um, Lisa and I, we had a dear friend, Derek Chapman. Derek was and is a beautiful human with a deep sense of, of the spiritual world, the unseen world. He walked closely and walked closely with the Lord. He had an attractive quality about the ways that he listened to the Spirit and the humble ways that he listened to the Spirit, even as he had a wildly eccentric way uh, in which he did that. I think one of the ways that I, I, that I can look back and remember where I first be began to realize the ways that unholy spirits worked in the world, I was actually with Derek. Um, Derek and I were driving, uh, I was living in San Francisco at the time, we're driving up the 101 just north of, of San Francisco, and um, there's a billboard, uh, kind of, it was on a bus, uh, and there's a billboard of a woman there. It's like a, it was a fashion-related image of a woman. She had heavy makeup on, and she's looking sort of forlorn and sexy. And then we're driving. I'm in my truck. Derek's next to me, and all of a sudden, he just shouts, that's a lie. And I'm like, what in the, I'm weaving. Who are you? D me? I didn't even say. What are we talking about here? And it freaked me out a little bit. I'm like, what in the world? And he begins to tell me that whenever he sees the devil's lies in public, he just names them. He just names them out loud. He said, I've gotten into this practice that I don't just want to drive by lies of the enemy without naming it. I was like, what are you talking about? And he, says, and he tells me, he says, look, the message of that billboard, it's, it's a lie from the enemy. It, 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 and what it's lying about is the worth of women as being bound up in image and corrupt notions of beauty. And that was a lie from the enemy. So he said, I'm just going to name it. I'm just, and he starts naming it. I'm like, I can't keep up. I'm just, can we go to the coffee shop? He starts naming the lies, and he said, this is a way that I can protest the ways that Satan and Satan's demons look to oppress women and men and distort the truth that all people are made in God's image just the way they are. I was like, oh, wow. We'll be naming a lot, bro. We go too much farther down 101. <laughs> you see, what, what Derek was teaching me, albeit uh, you know, unaware I was at the moment, was the practical truth that what we see with our eyes isn't all that there is. This lesson is, is deeply biblical and in keeping with the way that Jesus saw the world. That the Holy Spirit isn't the only spirit that is active in our world. And from the biblical perspective, the things that we see, they aren't the only things that are. There are unseen aspects to the world. And these unseen spiritual aspects to our world affect the parts of our world that are seen and experienced. We know this about God. God is, is spirit, and God isn't one that we can necessarily see with our eyes, even while we experience God's work in our lives and in the world. And we can see God's handiwork in the world. We see uh, God's creation in the world, and we see God's recreation in the lives of people. However, the Bible indicates that God and God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, isn't the only spirit that's active in the world, that there, that there is an enemy to God looking to undermine God and God's work in the world. 
The Bible calls this enemy by several names. The accuser, the enemy, the devil, Satan, those being the most common. And the enemy also has spirits that are under his command. And these spirits are most often called demons. Now, there are a couple of places where the Bible talks briefly about Satan's and the demon's origins, and I won't go into that except to say that the origin is rooted in resistance to God's love and rebellion against God's ways. And that resistance and that rebellion led to Satan's distance from God and his ongoing rebellion against God's kingdom. The enemy and the Lord are at odds with each other, with opposed aims and opposed purposes in the world. And Jesus identifies these different agendas at different points in his teaching. And perhaps none clearer than in John 10, where he identifies himself as the good shepherd who cares for his people and the enemy who he identifies through the metaphor of a thief whose aim is the destruction of the shepherd's sheep. In John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have life to the full, abundant life. And where we are now is living in the already not yet of God's kingdom where Satan's plans and purposes are failing and are meeting their ultimate demise because of Christ's victory in the cross and his resurrection from the tomb and the inbreaking of God's kingdom in the world. But there's still a contest ongoing. There's still contested ground. The world, the parts that we see and the parts that we don't, are still contested as the defeated enemy clings and scratches, even as his ultimate death is imminent. Satan has power still in the world, seen and unseen, but God has ultimate power. There, this is what Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament writers would describe when they're instructing the churches in the New Testament and encouraging believers in the first century church. Yes, Satan's defeat is secure and yet is still on the horizon. And God is still all powerful and moving humanity's history towards the day when Satan is finally vanquished and all things are made new and right and whole and true. And in the meantime, the New Testament writers and Jesus himself urged the church to be about resisting the enemy, to be aware of the enemy's work, his plans and the enemy's purposes, not to be fearful of them, but to be aware of them. A couple of examples of the New Testament's witness to this lived reality of the contested nature of the world and the Lord's lordship overall. The Apostle Peter would write to the churches in Asia Minor who were experiencing uh, severe hardship and persecution at the hand of the enemy controlling governments of oppression. He would write this in 1 Peter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Peter's instructions and encouragement don't neglect the fact that there's an enemy that's looking to wreck the world and the lives of those in it. And that is also a resistance call to Christians to stand firm in the faith. The faith of what? The faith uh, faith that you are part of a larger community of those who have been saved by Jesus and are secure in his powerful presence. Paul would say very similar things in his letter to churches throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, In Ephesians 6, he would say the passage we read, Finally, be strong, not on your own, but in the Lord and his mighty power, but on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This isn't a statement of surrender, nor is it a statement of fatalism, nor is it a statement of fantasy. It's not a statement that all is already okay in the world, but rather it is a statement, again, of resistance and sobriety. A recognition that there is a fight that is ongoing and that there is a role that those who follow Jesus must play in this struggle. In the Gospels, Jesus himself would identify the struggle. In Matthew 4, at the very beginning of his ministry, the Gospel records Jesus' journey into the wilderness to deal with the enemy's attacks on his own soul. In Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1, Then Jesus, led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus replied, he answered, It's written, man should not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He would go on to say in verse 11, Jesus said to him, to Satan, to the enemy, Away from me, Satan. For it's written, Worship the Lord and serve him only. The devil left him. And angels came and attended to him. I say all of this, and raise these different passages to simply highlight the point that our understanding of the work of the Spirit isn't in a spiritual vacuum, but it is set in a, in a cosmic struggle between God and Satan, and it is a struggle that was won by Christ on the cross and whose implications are being lived out now and will be fully realized on Jesus' return. It's into this story that Paul uh, it's into this context that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that you, when you were pagans, when you didn't follow the Lord somehow or other, I love that language, by the way. I feel like you're like, some kind of way, something, something happened. But you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul is identifying again that there are unholy spirits whose aim is to hurt and to confuse and to lie and to harm and to isolate and ultimately destroy the lives of those who bear God's image. Church, we can be affected by, even as followers of Jesus, we can be influenced by and we can even be controlled by unholy spirits. Even as Christians, we are not immune to the enemy's destructive influence and power. Sometimes we're keenly aware of the enemy's work in our lives, and other times we're blinded to it. But we don't need to be afraid of the enemy's influence in our lives. And we cannot be dismissive of it. Rather, it can serve as a prompt for us to press into the healing, restorative, and delivering work of the Holy Spirit. And that's my hope for us as a church and for me as a person. I want to walk through a few ways. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just a few ways that I think the enemy finds place in someone's life, followers of Jesus included. Ways that I think the enemy ends up in our, in our lives and seeps into our lives and seeks to to harm us and to isolate us and to lead us not into the life that Jesus offers, the abundant life, but, in, but into the half-life that the enemy offers. I think the first way that the enemy holds sway over our lives is through sin and sin patterns. 
What I mean here are consistent ways that we choose our own way of living over the ways that God calls us to live. This could be consistent ways that we sin in thought and word or deed, and we persist in that sin. A few examples could be ways that we sin with our words, patterns of lying or truth-stretching or falsifying, ways that our yes isn't yes and our no isn't no. And this pattern of duplicity, it can, it can create ways that the enemy can take root in our lives and it can wither our soul and keep you from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus is offering. I could highlight other examples, ways that we misuse our bodies, treating them as though they are ours alone and not temples of the Holy Spirit, ways we seek to satisfy ourselves by our own means and not trust that God is the one who truly satisfies. Sin patterns of control, where we seek to manipulate our lives and the lives of others, and that drive is rooted not in an ethic of God's love or God's sovereignty, but in an ethic of self-aggrandizement and self-fulfillment, and in this way becomes an opportunity for unholy spirits to guide your life rather than being led by the Holy Spirit. Sin patterns are ways that the enemy looks to destroy us. Like another way that unholy spirits can gain control of our lives is through unconfessed sin and secrets. One of sin's effects... And one of the tools of the enemy is isolation. Isolation is a, is, a, is a separation. It's a tearing away. In unconfessed sin and secrets, they foster isolation. They have a corrosive, withering quality about them. Secrets in families tear families apart. Secrets in a marriage erode the love that exists in a marriage. And this is also true in our relationships with God. As Dr. Rob Reimer at Alliance Theological Seminary says, we cannot heal that which we will not admit. God cannot cleanse that which we will not confess. Confession of sins and secrets, it exposes sin and it loosens the influence of unholy spirits and provides pathways for the Holy Spirit to bring healing and liberation that we also desperately need. It's hard for healing and nurture to happen in places shrouded in secrecy and the shame of hidden sins. There's this old sort of wives' tale that old-timers tell that said that, you know, letting sunlight in a room or sunlight on your laundry, that it would disinfect it, that it would sort of clean it out. What actually turns out that the old-timers knew what they were talking about. Uh, it turns out that in a recent University of Oregon study that there was wisdom in this tale. A study recently published in the scientific journal Microbiome, which I do not subscribe to. <laughs> Surprise. It notes that researchers found that rooms exposed to sunlight saw a dramatic decrease in the number of germs in the room when compared to rooms that were not exposed to sunlight. Even when compared to rooms that weren't given natural sunlight but were exposed just simply to UV rays, that sunlit rooms still showed fewer germs than dark rooms or UV-only rooms. Turns out that when we're exposed to the light of the sun, things that aim to harm us, they're eliminated. And similarly, when God's light shines in our lives, the elimination of secrets and the confession of sin, and it's in that light that healing and restoration and freedom is discovered. Well, you'll discover, churches, that Jesus' blood is greater than all of our sins and his love is stronger than all of our waywardness. And because of that, we can confess as assured people. Another way that Satan and his demons seek to control the life of someone 
is often through violence. This can come in the form of physical violence, of sexual trauma or emotional abuse. The trauma and pain caused at the hands of others it can be pathways that the enemy uses to undermine the work and the lives of those that are victimized. This is also true of those that have caused violence and abuse. That their acts of violence on others distort God's voice in their lives and can mute the activity of the Holy Spirit in their souls. When, when sin patterns and unconfessed sin and violence are at play in the hands of the enemy and used by unholy spirits, they can create a false narrative. A narrative in someone's life that is in opposition to the narrative that is true and that is rooted in God's love towards them. The enemy can use sin patterns or secrets or unconfessed sins and past abuses to begin a script in the life of someone so that they begin to misbelieve the truth that they're not fully known by God or they're not fully loved by God or they're not fully made in God's image or fully forgiven in God's grace or fully embraced by God and fully equipped for mission in God's kingdom. And I want to say that this can also be true of communities too. Just as it's true in the life of an individual, communities can engage in sin patterns and communities can fail to confess sin and secrets and communities can enact violence and oppression on others and that's the demonic work of the enemy in the midst of a community. This is what Paul was writing about to the church in Corinth when it said, listen, there, there is a demonic spirit that is engaging in powers and principalities in the Roman Empire. You don't need to fear it, but be sober-minded about it continue to live in light of the good news of Jesus. I think I could see that in our own context and in this country of how people of color are treated and mistreated. America's ongoing oppression of people of color rooted in a sin of racism, sin pattern. And in the absence of unconfessed sin and continued violence that historically has been perpetrated against people of color. That the enemy has gripped us in the vice of a lie that says some people's lives matter more than others and that lie distorts and mars the truth of God and the damaging effects on the souls of all of us that call this place home. If there ought to be any place where sin can be exposed and confessed and healed of, it ought to be in the community of those who found hope in the one who forgives and heals and sets all things right. The last way or the, the last one that I'll touch on that I think are ways that the unholy spirits can find their ways into the life of a person is through the worship of other gods. Throughout the Bible, God commands, he instructs, he invites those that he loves to worship him and him alone. And the reason for this is that we become what we worship. As theologian G.K. Beale notes that what people reveal, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. Our worship and our affections, they point to a future trajectory. Our worship is either aimed at our ruin or our worship is aimed at our restoration. If I worship the God of war, then I become war-filled. If I worship the God of money, then I view others and myself as a commodity. If I worship the God of myself, then I'm consumed by myself alone. But if I worship the God of love and of grace and of forgiveness and majesty and compassion, then my trajectory is glory. And I'm on the road to being more conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, I've just spent probably far too much time on how the enemy and how unholy spirits lay hold of a person's life 
through sin and sin patterns, through secrets and unconfessed sin, through violence and trauma. A demon can lay claim to a person and through the worship of other gods. But how does the spirit then come and loose the hold of the enemy on someone's life? The first way that the Holy Spirit loosens the grip of the enemy on the soul of a person is through confession. Confessing to the Lord and confessing to someone else who can show you God's love, who can show you forgiveness and embrace. Sin and sin's secrets, they, they produce a heart full of fear. But confession becomes the seedbed of embrace and freedom. David said in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through all my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What David is describing is the physical and emotional and spiritual effects of unconfessed sin. There's nothing more freeing than being able to get up in the morning and looking at yourself in the mirror and knowing that there are no secrets in your life that you've not already confessed to the Lord and to another person and that there's nothing else that could be exposed because it's already been exposed and you've already been embraced by God who forgives. Confession. There are times where Satan has laid claim to some area of your life for so long that the patterns of misbelief, the false narratives, and the withering behaviors that they have set, they've settled in and they've become hard to break. In those times, what's required is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to loose the strongholds in your life that Satan refuses to relinquish. The way that that most often happens is through the power of prayer and prayer ministry. Many times this is called deliverance. I want to just maybe give some examples of how this has happened. Um, f- for me in my life, I... Um, there have been a few moments where folks have prayed over me and there's been grips, strongholds in my life that have been broken open. I remember one, not long after we first moved here in D.C., we were still, we were living in Columbia Heights at the time and there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, where our kids would go to school and how we would educate them, what we would do, and, and some of it was just bound up in being in a new place and just so much uncertainty and the chaos that can swirl around when you feel like you're losing control of yourself and your life and your family. It was gripped. Whenever I think about it, just anxiety would sit on me. And I would feel it physically in my body. I'd feel it physically in my emotions. And I, could, I would pray myself. I would, you know, quiet times. I was there. I was with the Lord trying to walk, trying to sort it out. And, and it just, but it was still there. And I remember Lisa praying for me for, for a period of time. And I remember the moment where it just, it just broke open, where she reminded me of who God was, of who I was in the Lord, of who our kids were in the Lord, and that he was worthy of trust. And it was through that times of prayer, ongoing prayer, and reminders of the good news of Jesus that something just broke open, and it was a ministry of the Holy Spirit that just said, you're free now of that. Um, there was an underlying message uh, that could be that you, um, maybe for you, that the enemy has settled in that says that you're, that you're not good enough or that you're not worthy enough. I remember praying for a friend um, 
periodically that, uh, that they would come forward for prayer, that we would talk together. And one of the things that they had this consistent prayer, they would say, listen, whenever I, um, I'm really worried about my, about my work. They were a school teacher. I'm really worried about my work. Um, I experienced a lot of anxiety around my work. I, I, I'm not sure. I, you know, pray for the kids. Pray for me as a teacher. And so we would, we would pray for these things. I would pray for the students. I would pray for the, for the school. I would pray for their work, for their ability to be able to teach well. Just, God, would you, would you make a way that doesn't make a way? And then they just, they just had this sense of, I don't, I don't think I'm actually praying for the right thing in your life. I think that what you're really dealing with is an underlying anxiety where the enemy has crept in and has said that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy to teach, that you're not equipped enough because of a false narrative that has come into your life for one reason or another, and that what is needed is a work of the Spirit to come in and to break loose that, to name the fear, and to name the truth that Christ is sufficient. Um, I had a friend several months back that they came, and they, um, they shared that, uh, that they had... They had stopped hearing from the Lord. They had some trauma in their life that, um, that had happened not long after they came to faith in Jesus. And that because of that trauma, around that same time, they had begun to experience a silence from God. They felt like their prayers wouldn't go any farther than the ceiling, and they felt like they couldn't hear any farther from the Lord. And that what had happened in, that, in the wake of the trauma, I just had this sense that what had happened is that the enemy had come in, and they had begun to tell lies to this person. Lies around their worth and around who they are. It just said, listen, why don't you let us pray over you? We had members of the prayer team that came around this individual. And as we began praying together, it just had this sense that there was, that there was a name to the, to, the, to the demon that had laid claim to parts of their life. As we began praying, I asked her, I said, what's the name of the one that's laid claim to your life? And they said, it's guilt. So we named it. I said, spirit of guilt, in the name of Jesus, you don't have claim over this one anymore. This is a child of the king. They said yes to Jesus, and so Jesus has sole claim of their life. And so in the name of Jesus, guilt, we cast you out. As we continue to pray, we sense that there was something else there. And I looked over at Lisa, I said, I think there's another. And Lisa looked at me and she said, she mouthed, she said, it's shame person we're praying for, I said, is there another? And they said, yes. I said, what is it? They said, it's shame. We said, shame in the name of Jesus. We bind you. We cast you out. Because what Jesus does is he takes our shame and he gives us honor. And so there's a lie there that's been believed. Now, as this was going on, we're at the prayer station. I'm just letting you know sort of what happens at the prayer stations. You haven't gone over there. You know, we have, you know, we're sort of charismatic, but we're also liturgical. So we're sort of at the end of the service, and I know that they're on their last song. So I've got I to gotta stop doing this. I've got to come over here and give you the benediction. So I'm like, all right, I've got to go. So they, so they continue to pray. Come over here. I benedict you guys. Y'all probably, I mean, you guys didn't even know what was happening, but, but demons were being cast out. Come over here. When I go back over, Miss Brita, a saint in our church, and Lead in our prayer. She's, she's holding this person's face. 
saying to them, you are a child of the Almighty. You're beautiful, fearfully, and wonderfully made. Child of the Almighty. She's telling her the true narrative against the false narrative that had begun to be believed years ago because violence had been enacted upon. After we finished praying, she looked up and said, I feel free. That's right. Because you're free. Steps to walk in that freedom. I want you to walk with a small group. I'll get you connected to our counseling ministry. Some things don't just come about by confession. There's some things that have happened to us that weren't your control, but that because of it, the enemy has laid claim to aspects of your life that the Spirit can free and will free. The last way that I want to mention the Spirit brings freedom is through discipleship. <laughs> I sort of chuckled at this when I wrote it down. I was like, I feel like this is like a, a lot of other ways, sort of kind of category, confession, deliverance, and then a lot of other stuff. <laughs> That's sort of true, but what I mean here, and, and I think that what, what, what Jesus is meaning when he is talking about this in, in the Gospels and what the New Testament writers are meaning is that, is that there is power, that there is work that the Spirit does through the ongoing, daily, unimpressive followership of Jesus. Ordinary, disciplined, in God's Word, in prayer, in community, along the road with Jesus, you begin to experience a loosening of the enemy's grip on your life or in some area of your life that needs loosening. And you find that you trust God's Spirit. You trust that, that the work of God and, and, and the Holy Spirit in your life, that it, it's strengthened. A um, couple of years ago, that's three years ago now, um, I, I, um, I realized that um, my patience was getting really small, and particularly with my kids, and that I was discipling my children in the ways of impatience, in the ways of uh, gracelessness. And, I, and I don't want, I, that wasn't what I wanted to disciple them in. That wasn't what I wanted to raise them in. I wanted to raise them in grace and love and long-suffering, and instead I was discipling them in like, you know, when dad blows his top, like you better start moving around fast or something. And Lisa and I went on a prayer retreat and um, the, the prayer guide, a friend of ours named Mark, um, Mark was telling us, he proposed to us to have a 30-day experiment in some area of our life where we wanted the spirit to come in and I knew it was patience. And what uh, the spirit sort of centered me on is the baptism of Jesus. Where in, in Jesus' baptism, the, the Heavenly Father, the voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I was just meditating on that verse. He's meditating on that verse. And so I said, okay, here's what my 30-day experience is going to be, experiment is going to be. Every time or I get frustrated with the kids or I want to say something or I need to, my, the first words out of my mouth are going to be, I love you. You're a child of God. Now, first few times, a little weird. <laughs> but there was a way that over the course of those 30 days of every time I'm like, oh, I love you, child of God. <laughs> I got boys. I'm like, really? Don't pee on the toilet seat again. For crying out loud. You know, like I love you, my beloved son, child of God. Love you, beloved daughter, child of God. 
And over the course of 30 days, what I experienced was a loosening of the enemy's grip of impatience and control and a strengthening of the Holy Spirit's grip that led to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Just everyday followership of Jesus. Probably should do that experiment again. <laughs> so let me just land it here. Where is the Spirit wanting to work in your life right now? Where do you sense the Spirit moving in your soul? The Holy Spirit. Are there patterns of sin that the Spirit is bringing conviction about? Inviting you to lay those patterns aside and pick up patterns of living that are informed by the life-giving God who loves you. Maybe as we walk through this, you said, that's me. Maybe there are secrets or unconfessed sin that you need to lay before the Lord and another person so that you can experience the very real forgiveness that's offered through Christ. Perhaps there's pain in your past that you need the Spirit's intervention applied to. Areas where the enemy has been allowed to fabricate false narratives about who you are, about your worth and your value and your purpose. Lies the enemy has told you for far too long that have laid claim on your life and you're desperate for healing and for freedom. Church, the Spirit is here. The Spirit is anxious to liberate you, to heal you, to affirm you. And my hope, church, is that even in this moment and in this morning, that we would respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We pray for us and invite the band up.